So let's talk about some other rich bastards from history. Yeah. Do you want to go into... Uh... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Let's uh, cover the other half of the epic rap battle real Yeah, quick. Mansa Musa, Mansa right? Mansa Musa. So, um, contrary to popular belief, uh, Mansa Musa was actually not his name. His name uh, was just Musa. Mansa is actually the title that was given to him. That, that It means, like, king or ruler, right? Uh, so, Mansa Musa... I believe the direct translation would be more like Sultan. Something like which that. Which is kind of equivalent to king. Yes. Again, people... If you want to correct us or you know something we don't, please jump yeah. on one of our socials. Jump on the subreddit. Sultan is actually a, uh, a Muslim leader. Uh, I believe a sultan is a, or was, I don't know if they exist anymore, but I believe a sultan was a spiritual leader of the Muslim people who then had also political power. Uh, but I could be wrong about that. And so please correct me if I'm wrong. And if that is the case, that's what Mansa Musa really was. Exactly. So, But he was the king of Mali uh, from about 1312 to, I believe it was the 1340s, maybe? Something like that. Um, I don't have the exact dates. Um, he is unfortunately not very well recorded throughout history. With, One, with a couple of instances. <laughs> right. There are exceptions. Yeah. But unfortunately, if it wasn't Eurocentric, it didn't got, get talked about a lot. Yeah. Well... And, at least not for us uh, Americans. Yeah, definitely not for us Americans. But his life is estimated to have been from 1280 to 1337. 1337? 1337? Okay. Right. Yeah. So there is some argument over when he died, but it's usually agreed upon to be around 1337. Okay, fair enough. So, but yeah, Mansamusa, King of Mali, and he is widely regarded as the richest man to ever live, period. That is, even by today's standards. The rough calculations, the rough estimates of his net worth, or what would be the equivalent of his net worth today, is about $400 billion. But that is an extremely conservative, extremely rough estimate we have no way of knowing how much money this guy had. I think that was just based on what he brought with him. Exactly. His we have, pilgrimage. We have no way of knowing how much money he was actually worth. Molly, at the time, um, was just immensely rich with gold reserves. So much so that people were using it on spearheads. They were using it to decorate um, their like you know pottery bowls and stuff like it was everywhere. It, they they could make buildings out of this stuff. There was so much of it. Do you have the list of what he brought with him on his pilgrimage? I do, and I'll get we'll get to that eventually. Okay. Yeah, I was gonna say I have it here too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Molly was just filthy, stinking rich with gold, and when Mansa Musa came to power, Molly was relatively not very well known on the map, on the global map. Right? Certainly right. not by Europeans, but not even by other Africans or by other um, Arabic nations or Muslim nations at the time, where the Middle East was still the economic powerhouse and China was still the economic powerhouse of the world at the time. Right. And at that time, Cairo was actually the center for gold. Yes. Um, gold trade. So, Mansa Musa, in 1324, uh, he decides that he is going to go on Hajj, right? Which, for those of you that don't know, Hajj is one of the five pillars of Islam. Every Muslim, at some point in their life, has to at least attempt, if they are able to, financially and physically, they have to attempt to travel to Mecca, which is the holy site in Islam. And Mansa Musa 
goes to make this this Hajj. Um, and boy, did he go. Yeah, he brought with him 60,000 people, uh, roughly 20,000 of which were slaves. I read 12,000, um, but yeah. 12,000? Uh, Again, these are based on accounts of onlookers. Right. And all of them, uh, also 300 camels, and, uh, or what was it? It was 80 camels. 80 believe. camels. Uh, with 300 pounds of gold each, right? That's where the Anywhere between comes in. 50 to 300 pounds of yeah. gold dust. Yeah. Uh, and all of the 60,000 people that he had with him, even the slaves, were adorned, dressed to the nine with gold. They gold earrings. Four gold pounds of gold bars. As yeah. Well. Gold bars, gold earrings, gold necklaces, gold tipped spears, like I said. Yeah. The heralds were the ones with the gold staffs, dressed in silks. All of it. Just decked out, man. Completely. On top of that, during the whole pilgrimage, he paid for all the necessities for all of his men. Oh, yeah. I mean, why wouldn't you at that yeah. point, you know? Literally, all of the, like, all of the meals for the animals, the people, he paid all of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it goes into the, uh, you know, what I was about to say next, where while he was on his pilgrimage, while he was on the Hajj, anybody that he came across, anybody, whether they were rich or poor or anything like that, he would offer them you know, bit of his wealth, right? Especially to the poor, yes. which falls in line with another one of the um, five pillars of Islam, which is almsgiving, right? Everybody who is financially stable enough is required, according to the Muslim faith, to give a portion of their wealth towards charity or to build up the community in some way, just anything, right? It, it could be direct donations to a charity. It could be direct donations to somebody in need, or it can be like building mosques, building schools, stuff like that, right? So this is, again, what he did. I and think, boy, howdy, did he do it big. I think legend has it, too. He built a mosque every Friday. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he actually ended up donating so much of his gold uh, when he got to Cairo. I know you've been waiting for this. When he got to Cairo, he flooded the market with gold. So much so that it depreciated the value of gold in Cairo by 50%. It cut the worth of gold in half, and Mansa Musa was required by the moneylenders in Cairo to take as much gold as he can carry to try to offset the difference. And it's, it's insane. And it still led to a 10-year recession for them. Oh, yeah. And not just them. It was everywhere he went. Yeah, I, the, the same thing happened in Medina and Mecca. Not to the same extent. I think it was like around 20% uh, at that point. But still, like, this dude just gave away so much gold. He caused three at least recessions. At least three recessions in three different places. That lasted for years. I will say, though, that may have been intentional. You think? Uh, if you wanted to buy gold in bulk... He went to Cairo. Mm, okay. And he also wanted to put Mali on the map and make that the center hub for buying gold in Bach. Okay. So you so, think there might have been an ulterior motive to this philanthropy? Yeah. Some of some of that may have been, you know, a bit of, hey, one, I want to spread my wealth. Because he was about spreading wealth and building up people. Mm. But at the same time, he's just like, I'm going to go to Mecca in style, and on my way, I am going to disrupt Cairo's gold supply so people come to Mali. Mm, okay. 
Okay, doing a little yeah. bit of sneaky deaky politics there. I, I'm right. going to say though, if you can one, you know, take out your competition like that <laughs> while boosting people. Oh man, do it. That can you just can you imagine what it would be like to have that much wealth? Yeah. Can you imagine what it would be like to look at yourself and be like, what am I going to do today? Hmm, I think I'm going to crash three economies before lunch. You know, like what the heck? Yeah, and again, I want to shout out Screw again. Like, his swagger in that ERB mm. was just mwah. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I just love when he comes on, he's just like, King of Molly. Just that whole, both, both verses were just phenomenal. Yeah, it was, oh, it was <laughs> great. And one of the ones. Um, and it's always nice seeing Bezos get his ass beat. Oh, yeah. But uh, one of the other lyrics that I th- that I liked from that one um, was "I'm schooling you like Timbuktu," because man, that was Bezos just, is lying. Be- yeah. yeah, Bezos was talking about "I'm schooling you like Timbuktu." Yeah, no, that eating you like old foods that was corny as hell. That, but no, but it it, it really because if you think about it, what do you know about Timbuktu? Right, like prior prior to all of this that you might have done, what did you know about Timbuktu? Not as much. Mm-hmm. I knew it was tied to a great university, and you know. Always you hear like it has a faraway place. From here know? to Timbuktu From or all the Timbuktu, way to Timbuktu. Yeah. yeah. That's how most people, when they think of Timbuktu, they think of that old, you know, analogy from here to Timbuktu or, you know, all the way to Timbuktu, whatever it might be, right? That's how we collectively have remembered, at least in America anyway, how we collectively have remembered Timbuktu. But man, Timbuktu back in its heyday, it was the fucking place to be. It was the cultural educational mega center of the ancient world oh, yeah it was for both education and islam for education for islam for culture everything it was and gold and gold <laughs> yeah it was the place to be if you were a scholar in the 14th century and you didn't go to timbuktu you wanted to go to timbuktu people would egyptian scholars and scholars from all over the world like all the way from China, Europe, everywhere. They would come to Timbuktu and they would go with the full intention of being a teacher. They would say, I want to teach in Timbuktu. And then they would get schooled and then they would say, you know what? I'm going to become a student here at Timbuktu. I'm going to stay here, learn what I can, and then take that back to my country and my kingdom so that I can help build them up. I believe too, when he was coming back uh, from his pilgrimage, he also brought along with him a lot of scholars, too. Probably, yeah. Mm-hmm. I definitely wouldn't doubt it. I was going to say, the the specific university was the University of, and forgive me if I'm pronouncing this wrong, Sankor? Uh, it's S-A-N-K-O-R-E. Probably. Sankore, probably. Sankore. Yeah. Yeah, and by the end of Musa's reign was a fully-staffed university with the largest collection of manuscripts and books since the Library of Alexandria. Oh. I believe it had over a million manuscripts. I'm sorry, you just, you, you gotta forgive me for a second. I just, I just visibly pained when he mentioned the Library of Alexandria. It still hurts. It still hurts. And was capable of housing 25,000 students. Yeah. Oh, it was a happening place, man. It was... It was the cream of the educational I believe, the, I 
believe the university is still there too. It is. Yeah. yeah. It's. I mean, it's obviously not the original university. They've well, no, no. I mean, bit, the but... original building is still there. For well, the university. yeah, yeah, yeah. They've expanded upon it, obviously. Yeah, yeah. There was a very famous saying in Mali where of all the things that you can trade in the market, books are the most valuable. And there were hundreds of thousands of scholars that would come to the city over the course of, you know, a couple of years that would just come there to learn all that they could learn and then take that knowledge back with them. Stuff like mathematics, medicine, science, engineering, religion, if you were Muslim, right? And even if you weren't Muslim, they probably had, you know, religious scholars there for, you know, the other people of the book, the Jews and the Christians, right? Because sure. Islam, contrary to popular belief, Islam, at least back in the day, had no qualms with Christians or Jews. They were seen as people of the book and they were highly respected within Muslim communities. They just had to pay tax. So it, I imagine that you could go to the uh, the university in Timbuktu and you could learn literally anything you wanted. At least at the time, right? right? Whatever collective knowledge that they had at the time, you know, you couldn't learn about, you know, astrophysics probably because that wasn't even a thing back then. But I mean, to be fair, there's a lot of physics and astronomy wise. Well, astronomy, yes. Yeah. But I'm talking about like, you know. Astronomy wise, like they probably had yeah, I was going to say. You know, actually, that does that does I was remind say, me. I believe it was um, a lot of uh, the Middle East that developed a lot of what we knew at the time. For uh, you know, now that I'm thinking astronomy. about it, um, that does remind me. I think it was ancient Egypt. They estimated the distance between the Earth and the Moon, and they weren't off by much. I think it was like only a couple of thousand meters. Well, I mean, Egypt was built by aliens, right? Oh, 100 percent. Egypt that's at, that's what that uh, economics guy on History Channel with crazy hair says all the time. <laughs> Aliens, detective, uh, or not detective, Doctor uh, Sukopolis, I think his name is. Yeah, he, he's or Sukolos, I think it is. Sukolos. Yeah, it's not even his. He's not even a history major. He's like finance or economics or something, something like, like that. that. Yeah, I don't know. I love Aliens. that guy though. Yeah, I love him. It is, I saw the meme of like his like his his features over time, and his hair just keeps getting closer and closer to rising. He's being abducted slowly over the course of twenty years. <laughs> yeah, no, but man, ah, Timbuktu was yeah, it was something, and it was the place to go. I have to find the video and show it to you. I think it was from yeah. He was talking about how Stonehenge was built. It was thirty two, mm -hmm. and they proved that just. One person can move one of those giant stones. Oh, yeah. Between pulleys, pebbles, things like that. One person can move, like, 20 tons. There's one guy that was obsessed with moving as much weight as he could. Mm -hmm. And he proved that one person could do it. People severely underestimate the ingenuity of the ancient world. Because when you think about it, if you live in a society where, you know... You don't really need to worry about food. You don't really need to worry about water because you have an actual society now. You can dedicate so many resources to just figuring shit out. And for the longest time, people were stumped by how the pyramids were formed. They were like, they could not have dragged these 20-ton granite limestone blocks up the, the side of this cliff. No, there's no way they could have done it. And then Brilliant. they figured out, and then they figured out, like, I don't know, a couple of decades ago probably now, that... They didn't. They used water. They would put these stone tabs, or the limestone tabs, the giant 20,000 ton, or the giant 2,000 ton, whatever they are, stone blocks, under these wooden, or on top of the wooden blocks, 
the wood would float when it would actually, the water would rise and everything like that. So it would cause these granite blocks or these limestone blocks to float and then they would run the current up the side of the pyramids and then when all of the blocks were in place where they should have been or at least relatively speaking they would push them into place and then drain the water and then there you go yeah and they also had ancient equivalent of cranes pulley systems like the pulley has been around for a very long time Mm mm-hmm and it's been used effectively by animals and other beasts of burden and even people for a very long time. I was going to say, it was probably the second thing they came up with after the wheel. Yeah. I mean, figure, you know, pulley systems use wheels or tree branches, things like that. Probably. But yeah, the, the ingenuity of the ancient world is actually crazy. And people discredit that so much. They say, oh, it must have been aliens, or they must have had some sort of outside assistance. No, people are smart. If you give people enough time to figure shit out, they'll figure it out. Yeah. I mean, remember, they were still homo sapiens. They were the same people as us. Yeah. You know, they can figure out the same things we can figure out. Yeah. And if you think about the, the resources of their time and the technology of their time and everything like that, they would know how to use those tools a million times better than we would. Oh, definitely. Just because they grew up with them, right? Yeah. We could teach a caveman to use a computer. I don't know that a caveman could teach us to use an axe the way that he used an axe. Speaking of which, that'd be fun to talk about sometime. Mm. The other species of man. Ooh, yeah. Like Neanderthal, Homo habilis, all that good stuff. Yeah. yeah. The, what is it, Denisovans? Mm. There are more species of humans than people realize. Yeah. There are a lot. We're just covering more all the time. Yeah. More of those missing links. Missing links, quote-unquote. Well, no, these are other species that evolved alongside of us, before us. Yes. Oh, yeah. And people don't realize that most modern humans have the DNA from those Neanderthals, Homo habilis, Homo uh, Denisovan. If you are a white person that has any sort of ancestry to Northern Europe from, I believe it's from Germany North, right? Mm -hmm then there is a solid chance that you have a small fraction of Neanderthal DNA in you. Oh, yeah. And it's like, it's not even like a 50-50 shot. It's like you most likely have Neanderthal DNA in you. Yeah. Because of the interbreeding that Neanderthals and Homo sapiens did when they both lived in Europe, in Northern Europe. Yeah. It's amazing. And it's a topic I love visiting every once in a while just to see what new updates there are. Oh, yeah. That would be, yeah, we could totally do a deep dive on that. That'd be crazy. Oh, yeah. And then we could expose our Ancestry.com results if we want to. <laughs> but I think we're getting yeah, we're more off topic. off topic. More off topic. More off topic. We like to go on tangents in case you guys haven't realized. Hey, you know what? It's all good. Yeah. No, but Mansa Musa, it, what he did to Timbuktu really is, I think, the, the calling card of his reign. Because Timbuktu, prior to this, prior to Mansa Musa, it wasn't that big. It was not this cultural epicenter of learning and education. It was a city, much like any other, right? And then he said, no, we're going to make something out of this. He built those schools. He built those mosques. He built those institutions of learning. He paid the scholars to do the learning, to bring the education that they didn't have from elsewhere. Because again, the Middle East was the epicenter of learning at the time. So he created Timbuktu into 
what it is now, the mecca of education in the 14th century. He did that. Oh, yeah. And that is, I believe, the most important thing that he could have done ever in his reign. More important than the crashing the three economies on this way to Mecca. More important than putting Mali on the map. It was building up that educational infrastructure and creating Timbuktu. And when you say put Mali on the map, no, literally. Oh, yeah. The Catalan Atlas. The Atlas of Catalan, yeah. Literally, because of him, they put it it and him on the map. So the Atlas of Catalan is actually a really cool thing to talk about. 1375, um, I believe it was, right? Yes. Uh, during the mid-1370s, mid right? They don't have an exact date. Yeah, but I, I think the guesstimated date was... 1375. Yeah. So back in the mid to, mid to late 13th century, uh, or 14th century, excuse me, um, Charles V, who was the king of France at the time, uh, he commissioned a man, Abraham Cresc, I think I'm pronouncing that right, uh, to work on this atlas, right? He wanted to collect all of the modern and historical knowledge, like an atlas would be, from across the world, right? And so Abraham Cresc, he went on this journey across the world and he started collecting information about different cultures and different histories and stuff like that and he built the atlas and yes Mansa Musa is absolutely there on the atlas Mali is there on the atlas but he's not the only important figure that's on the atlas oh, no. there are tons of different rulers and important figures throughout history and it's interesting because the atlas of Catalan for all of its actual material knowledge it's also incredibly heavily influenced by Christian theology because it shows it, it has people like Alexander the Great and it depicts him potentially battling what could be interpreted as Satan. It shows the expansion of uh, Christianity throughout Europe and the Middle East, but it doesn't really top it doesn't really touch on much of uh, Muslim history or Jewish history or anything like that. Um, so it is very heavily framed from this Christian mindset, and it also shows the three wise men on their way to Jerusalem. But it also shows historical figures like Alexander the Great, you know, even though he is fighting Satan at the time. But it also shows like Marco Polo on his trip to China, and it deals with him exclusively talking to the Kublai Khan. Um, it's got the king of Nubia at the time, the sultan of Babylon, a whole bunch of other historical figures and relative people and relevant people at the time. So Mansa Musa. He's, he's on there, which is a tribute to him, right? Kudos to him, but he's not the only one on there, right? Oh, no. And I would argue that he's not even the most influential as far as history is concerned that's on there. Not, not taking anything away from Mansa oh, Musa. No. He did fantastic things for his time. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. No, no but yeah, when you say not was... most influential, that doesn't mean not influential. Oh, no, absolutely not. No, no. Like, he, he, like I said, he, he gets credit for Timbuktu, and that is vastly important. Oh, Incredibly, yeah. But it's amazing because this is what Europe's dark ages, right? So, yeah, just it's just before the Enlightenment, the first Enlightenment, anyway. Right. Yeah. But it's amazing while Europe is going through its dark ages, Musa's over there putting Mali through their literal golden age. Yes, the golden age of Mali, the golden age of Africa. You know. Yeah. Because at the time, these African kingdoms they were doing pretty well for themselves. You know, it wasn't yeah. just Mali; it was Egypt. It was um, the uh, it. In the sub-Saharan area, at least, it was uh, the Songhai Empire. It was way up there at the time. Yeah. Uh, there were tons. For those of you that are, you know, have Eurocentric histories like most of Americans, um, I would strongly recommend looking into the history of 
Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. It's fascinating. There's 5,000 years of it. You can dig into so many different empires that have risen and fallen, so many different enlightenments of civilization and technology. The Islamic Golden Age is one of my favorites that I would love to dig into one time. I got to learn more about it first. Um, and just like all of the different African empires that have exploded oh, over the years that definitely. have been so influential in world history that we have just left by the wayside because it's not Europe. So, And I want to pick a little, little fight with the ERB Jeff Bezos mm. for saying, what was the long-term play of giving your wealth away? I can feed your whole country for a price of coffee a day. Yeah. Yeah. You know why a lot of that is? white people yeah rich white people yeah you know that whole yeah so, colonizing africa and stripping it of its natural resources for about a hundred years and then just leaving yeah and leaving them to deal with the mess that they created yeah that's colonization in a nutshell we'll talk about that later oh yeah yeah jeff that that, that sounded more like a self-diss to me <laughs> yeah probably it's like or at least like a double-edged you know yeah thing. that's it's it's like hey Mr. Rich White Guy? It's like the pot calling the kettle black, you know? Yeah, don't call the, you know, empire that white people helped dismantle. Don't bring that up. Yeah. <laughs> might might or, be important. Unless you're saying sorry or trying to actually help. Yeah. But there is um, another one of his lines, uh, the Bezos lines. Um, your ship has sailed like the dude who came before you. I actually didn't really know about this one prior to, and I was like, you know what? Let me look into that, right? Let me, let me you know... It's crazy. <laughs> this story is insane. So the the guy who came before him, the dude who came before you, right, was the previous king of Mali before Mansa Musa, which was Mansa Abu Bakr II. Now, Abu Bakr II, to his credit, he was a man of mystery and discovery. And like he was like Africa's, you know, um, Marco Polo or Christopher Columbus, you know, people that just wanted to get out there and search. Not that I'm saying that Christopher Columbus was a good person because we've already discussed fuck Christopher Columbus. But anyway, yes. as um, we said Abu in Bakr, the last episode, yes, fuck Christopher Columbus. <laughs> but Abu Bakr II, he literally abdicated the throne and sailed off into the Atlantic Ocean in search of mystery and discovery and wonder and excitement, right? So he gave the throne to Mansa Musa. And he headed off with, I think the estimates are anywhere from like 200 to 2,000 ships. He actually launched two expeditions to explore the Atlantic. Yes. The, the first, first one he one didn't was, go. Yeah, the first one was 200, and he didn't go on that one. The yeah. next one was the, what was the number? The 2,000, I 2000, think. 2,000, um, yeah. Yeah, so the, the first expedition, he sent a group of men out, and the one ship that came back reported that they had hit like a typhoon or some sort of like natural disaster that sank the ship, but that the, the ship came back and they were like, we saw land. So we knew that it was there, but we just, we had to come back. Um, and so uh, Mansa Abu Bakr II was like, I'm sold, we're, we're going, right? And so he headed off on his ship with 2000 other ships and took all of his, took a bunch of men and just poof, said, hey, you're the king now and I'm going. And he just sailed into the Atlantic Ocean. But the crazy thing is that there's actually some evidence to suggest that he made the trip, that he crossed the Atlantic and he landed in South America, in Brazil specifically. There's some evidence to suggest that he was there. Uh, and the reason why there's evidence that suggests that is a couple of reasons. One, they found Mandinka inscriptions. Mandinka, which is the language, was the language of Mali at the time. 
Um, they found Mandinka inscriptions that were like all over the place in Brazil in several sites. Um, and as well as apparently a couple in Arizona, if you can believe that. So they, they made it. They went places. And there were also reports from Christopher Columbus when he made his journey across the sea and all that, that the natives there had traded with black people that had gold-tipped spears, much like the gold-tipped spears of the people of Mali, and the gold that they got that they said, hey, this is these are from these black traders that we saw, it matched the gold that was found in Mali almost perfectly. There is actual evidence to suggest that Mansa Abu Bakr II actually made it across. And he, there we go, Africa discovered, America first discovered, quote unquote. Well, what's really crazy, and people don't realize this because most maps you see in school are stupid, but Africa is actually a lot closer to the Americas. Oh yeah. Then Europe, and we don't realize that, I believe, speaking in latitude... Latitude is north-south longitude, is east-west. You're right. Yeah. But I believe, is it Africa is more in line with, like, Florida and... Yeah. Yeah. Africa is... Like, England is a lot further up than people realize. Oh, yeah, no. So, uh, straight across, I believe, if you get to, uh, like, Liberia, Liberia is directly across from I want to say it's like Florida or Mexico so there are there is a huge chunk of Africa Liberia is definitely something we should talk about at some point yeah there is a huge chunk of Africa that is like pretty much where America is yeah and it's it's interesting because actually from I believe it is Liberia from Liberia you would think that if you're looking on a map you would think that from Liberia to Brazil would be the closest distance but no it's actually from Liberia to Boston <laughs> the closest distance like the the shortest trip is from Liberia to Boston there we yeah. go that I don't think that is necessarily mile wise I think that's taken into account at the time the wind patterns too. right wind patterns and yeah. curvature and all that stuff yeah but it's yeah. just it, it 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 really does go to show you how much like flat maps distort our view and our our perception of how the world actually is and it makes africa look a lot smaller too oh, in a lot of africa's huge good god oh something like god. 14 times the size of north america or something like that i something it's like it's that, ridiculous yeah. oh my god you could fit the entirety of the united states all of europe all of china and i think all of india and you still have a little bit of space left over for some of the smaller countries. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Africa is huge. Eurocentrism really distorts the view of the world. Yeah. Well, not only that, but you also got to think about the Mercator effect when you, like, flatten out a row of... A, a, a sphere, a yeah. Yeah. So that also plays into effect. But, yeah, but, I but mean, still, you not, can definitely... Not only literally the view of the world, but... The yeah. view of the world. Yeah, but you could definitely... I, there's actually a way that you could make a Mercator, a flat map that is more accurate as far as size distortion, and it's so jarring. It is. It's so alarming. You look at Greenland and you're like, oh my god, it's so tiny. <laughs> and there is... I think this is one of the topics we talked about uh, wanting to cover at some point was the non-Eurocentric trade. Mm-hmm. And there is evidence like you were saying, to suggest that there was trade with the Americas well before Columbus. Yeah. Because, again, the continent of Africa is a lot closer to the Americas than Europe. 
And if you think about it as well, like the Tonga Empire that conquered the Philippines and way out into the Pacific Ocean, they also probably reached America at some point. Oh, yeah. And there's evidence to suggest that Japan, way, way back in the day when Japan was still not even really a country, that they might have also landed in the Americas. I've heard that, and I've heard some recent evidence that contested some of that, too. Yeah. I, I forget... I wasn't planning on talking about it this episode, but I did read one of their leading theories about, not that it was completely wrong, but it happened differently than thought. Well, I mean... That changes all the time with more we find. Yeah. Was it something interesting? And I'll I'll probably post this in our subreddit if I can find the information. But there is one uh, Native American language that had more in common with Japanese than other Native American languages hmm. than it had with other Native American languages. Interesting. Yeah, I'll have to look that up. It was years ago that I was reading about that. That would be interesting. Yeah. Like, there's some historical records of, I believe it was some Japanese monks that sailed to the Americas. I believe it. It's amazing. Like, growing up in a Eurocentric history viewpoint, you don't realize how much more activity throughout the world there was. Oh, it's it's absurd. There's 5,000 years of Chinese history that we know practically nothing about. I took an Asian history class and I still know barely anything about Chinese history compared to what I know about American or European history. It's crazy. And I mean, that also goes into the fact that there's 5,000 years of it and trying to pack that into a semester of college is not going to work, but no. still. It's, it's There's a reason why Asian history is a major oh, in yeah. of itself. It, it's crazy. There's 5,000 years of people doing stuff, which I mean, if that's really all history is, it's just people doing stuff, but it's important stuff. It's stuff that literally changed the way that we view the world and the way that things happened. I mean, if the Silk Road was never created, how different would the world be? And we have the Chinese to thank for it. Yeah. We have the Chinese 3,000 years ago to thank for it. Yeah. It's and the reason why the Silk Road was created and the reason why the Great Wall was created was because of the Mongols. Think about how different the world would be if certain events in history never happened or if certain relationships were different, right? right. The Great Wall of China would never have been built. The Silk Road would never have been created. And if the Silk Road was never created, then Buddhism would never have gotten outside of India the way that it did, right? It's just insane the way that these historical domino effects happen and how they can perceive or how they can impact our perception of the world and how they can change history, you know? And now we're getting off topic again. <laughs> kind of, sort of. Yeah. You know. I mean, we're talking about, you can't talk about the richest people without talking about trade. That's true. And, and There we go. Like we'll that. justify that one. <laughs> but, and, and you kind of touched on a couple of the richest people in the world that I... I in history that I would like to talk about or at least bring up. Alright, let's do it. Because Musa was not the only ridiculously wealthy person in history. Oh no. And his number one spot is contested. Really? Yes. Who's contesting it? I'm so curious. It's hard to say because you're getting into like medieval ages, ancient history and the further back you go the harder it gets to reliably calculate you know, someone's yeah. wealth. So one of the people to bring up here is Augustus Caesar. Good old Caesar. How much uh, How much did they think he was worth? Well, not only was he in control of 20 
25 to 30 percent of the world's GDP at the time. He also had a vast personal wealth, which was quite potentially up to $4.6 trillion. Wow. Now that's that's back then money, right? That's not like... That's adjusted for today. $4.6 trillion. Suck it, Bezos. Suck but, it, Bezos. We want to talk about that 5%, 6% for all 10 of the Americans. No, this guy single-handedly would have almost 20%. Yeah, no. Like, I think... His personal wealth was about 5% of... Almost 25%, excuse me, Jesus. Well, 25 to 30 was the country's, the empire's uh, yeah. GDP. Yeah. And his personal wealth was about 5% of that. Jesus Christ. Yeah. I believe it was something like 5% of that. That is... That is crazy. Yeah. Oh, my God. Man. Again, we're talking 63 BC to 14 AD. So, yeah, I imagine We're that those numbers... We're talking about 2,000 years ago. Yeah, I, I was about to say, I imagine that those numbers aren't exactly the most reliable, but... But even we're still, talking those about, estimates... Yeah, we're talking yeah. about a guy who is in control of a quarter of the world's money. Yeah. I mean, the Roman Empire, was, it was massive. People, that's another thing that people just don't know about, is just how big the Roman Empire was. It was crazy. Yeah. And Caesar, at the time, he he was absolutely in control of yeah. all of it. And this is Augustus, not Julius, but... But even still. Yeah. You know, well, I'm, them, I'm you know? emphasizing for the listeners. Yeah. They can't see our screen. That, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yes. Augustus Caesar, excuse me. But yeah, no, Augustus Caesar was absolutely in control of all of that empire. I mean, you can never control all of the empire, but still. You could certainly try. You can certainly try, and try he did. All right, so who's next? Well, from 1542 to 1605, we have Akbar I, also known as Akbar the Great. Akbar the Great. He was India's third, and again, forgive me if I'm not pronouncing this correctly, third Mughal Empire. Mughal? The Mughal Empire? Yeah. Yeah. His wealth was incalculable, but his territory did account for 25% of the world's GDP at the time. Yeah, okay. That's, again, one of those empires. Yeah. So Fun this... fact, um, uh, the word mogul, like we say, like business mogul, it actually comes from the Indian moguls. Yeah. That's kind of what I was thinking, but <laughs> yeah. I wasn't sure. But yeah, even though it was the empire's wealth, he was given a lot of leeway to spend it. Well, I mean, back in those days, and even a little bit nowadays, but back in those days, like, if you were the king or if you were the ruler of an area, then you were basically it. Like, you were god of that area, basically. You, all of the people under there were your subjects. They were not your citizens or anything like that. So they essentially owed you for the privilege of being born on your land, right? Right, so right. That was how they justified it anyway. Yeah, at the same time, there's a little bit of red tape and... All yeah. that. Like, yeah, sure, he could get rid of the red tape, but... To keep the money flowing, you want to keep And to somebody. keep, you know, people from... Chopping not, your head off. Yeah, from not, you know, pulling a Brutus on you. Yeah. Et tu, Brute? All right, who's next? Carnegie. Andrew Carnegie. Yes. Okay. The memory serves, he was a steel and railway magnate, I believe? Yes. Yeah. He is the oil industry. Oil industry, okay. Carnegie was oil. That's right. He, oh, I thought Rockefeller was oil, or maybe Rockefeller. Oh, no, no, he was, was actually both. You're right. You were both. He wasn't okay. Steel. Yeah. 
he left the oil industry to Rockefeller and focused on the steel industry. There Sorry. we go. The Carnegie Steel Company, his fortune was estimated to be about $372 billion. And I believe either Carnegie or Rockefeller were actually the world's first billionaires, if memory serves. Like, literally, like, they had a billion dollars In their then. time, yeah. Yeah. Well, no, but even still, like, nobody... At least as in the industrialized nations, nobody had ever, no no non-ruler had ever accumulated that much wealth before from business. Fair point. Yeah. I was going to say, we just got done talking about Mansa Musa. Yeah, no, no, but like business, yeah. business people, right? Business-wise, yeah. yes. And a little bit of a fun fact, Carnegie did donate 90% of his wealth to charities before he died. Hmm. Good for him. I imagine that's the why- The charities, universities, and other. Yeah, I imagine that's why almost every university has a Carnegie Hall. I don't know if every university does. Don't at me at that. <laughs> then, of course, Rockefeller. John D. Rockefeller. 341. Mm. 341 billion. And you're right. He was the first person to raise a billion dollars. There we go. And convert it, his fortune would come up to be about $341 billion. Jesus Christ. So once again, Bezos and Musk can suck it. And he, again, did spend a lot of his money in uh, charities. Before he passed. Hmm. And then 1868 to 1918, Nikolai Romanov. The Romanovs, okay. I'm assuming he's one of the Romanovs. He looks like it. Yeah. And he was 300 billion. Again, this is another emperor. Right. Uh, so usually when we talk a lot about billionaires throughout history, they usually separate the people who had an empire's wealth versus a personal wealth. Okay. So sometimes you won't necessarily see, like, Musa or right. Romanov on that list. Talking about ordinary citizens, quote-unquote. I was going to say, Musa, though, he did a lot to raise that wealth. He's the one oh, absolutely. had people digging for gold, like, 24-7. Yeah, and he also uh, instituted a personal wealth tax where a portion of all of the wealth that was collected would go directly to him. Who do we got next? So next up is Mir Osman Ali Khan. Who, who is also known as the Nizam of Hyderabad. He was worth about $230 billion. Wow, so we finally got one that Musk beat. He reportedly owned 50 Rolls Royces. Why? Like, why do you need that many Rolls? One for each of your concubines, I guess? I don't know. Assuming yeah. he had concubines. I mean, I mean, if I had $230 billion, I'd have concubines, I'm just saying. But... Yeah. And he had his own currency. His own currency? Okay. Are we talking about like his face was on the money or like he had his own currency? The Hyderabad rupee. Oh, okay. No, he, he ruled Hyderabad until the country was invaded by neighboring India. And I'll have to see if we can find the Time magazine cover. His portrait was on the 1937 edition of Time so he magazine. Was, he was Time magazine's man of the year? Essentially. Nice. Good on you, mate. Just, I hope shows, you, just shows you billionaires have been getting on that cover for a while. Oh, yeah. I sincerely hope that he didn't get it by exploiting his workforce, but I mean, I'm not hopeful. He's a ruler of a country. That's true. I was going to say that's kind of their... Uh, that's kind of their whole shtick, you know? And he's he can be considered the richest man in Indian history. Oh, that's an important title. <laughs> what do you know about William the Conqueror? Uh, not as much as you might think, honestly. Fair enough. From 1027 to 1087, his worth was about $229.5 billion. God damn. And that should be said, that's what he left to his children when he died. Oh, 
So he had more than that. Possibly. Yeah. Again, that's a thousand years ago. We'll never know. The world will never know. Gaddafi. Gaddafi, of course. 200 billion. You know, that actually surprises me. I don't know why it does, but it surprises me. We got good old Henry Ford on here. Henry Ford. $199 billion. That's converted, of course. Uh, fun fact for those of you that don't know, uh, Henry Ford is actually the man who is credited with creating The weekend. Uh, yes. The reason why, and it's not as you know philanthropic as you might think, but the reason why is because everybody had off on Sundays, right? But because everybody had off on Sundays, uh, nobody was open on Sundays. So, uh, in, uh, up to and including the businesses that were selling his cars. So he decided to give all of his workers off on Saturday so that they could buy his cars on Saturday and then use those use cars. those cars and you know ex- and basically free advertisement and you know all that stuff but yeah he also paid his workers a decently living wage in order to buy those cars so i will say that as far as business acumen is concerned ford is probably one of the better businessmen he paid his workers a decent wage he's still like the working conditions were still shit but i mean that's just every working conditions in the 1930s back then were shit and he was absolutely a horrible human being henry ford had a picture of adolf hitler on his desk and adolf hitler had a picture of ford on his desk so you know not exactly the the shining example of human dignity but as far as business acumen is concerned he's respectable on uh, according to his time and I would say that he does better than some might actually do nowadays. <coughs> Bezos. <coughs> Just saying. Yeah. So, what do we got next there? Are you want to go through all of them? Just the top ten? Oh, what is that? Uh, they got one more on this list. One more? Yeah, this is on IndiaTimes.com. I should have probably said that at the beginning. That's fine. We can post all of our sources in the comments or whatever. Again, we can continue this discussion uh, over on the subreddit. That is true. There we go. R slash what do you know podcast. A. Number 11 is Cornelius Vanderbilt. Ah, Vanderbilt. 1794 to 1877. Estimated worth of $185 billion. $185 billion, which would place him solidly in third place, I believe. In America, anyway. Something like that. Yeah, because Musk is at 258 Bezos is at 195 And if you want to go with the GDP rate instead of inflation rate, he is 1.15% of the GDP of the U.S. at the wow. time. Yeah. No, but that's GDP. That's not the money supply, though. That's right. different. Right, but I'm saying... Yeah. That is crazy, though, yeah. that he there's, alone... There's two ways to kind of calculate well. Yeah. It's the actual inflation, adjusted for inflation rate, and the other is based on the GDP. Yeah, no, but that is that is crazy that he controlled almost 2% of the GDP. That's... Well... One, 1.15. Oh, 1.15? Okay. 1.15. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's still crazy. Billionaires throughout history, man. Yeah. There have been quite a few. People still put Musa at the top of this list because, like others, his wealth is incalculable. Oh, it's... Yeah. Uh, uh, we were talking about it when he brought all of that gold with him, the 300 pounds of gold on each camel, the gold tip spears, all of that. We have no way of knowing how much of a percentage of his wealth that was. Right. And he didn't even get rid of all of it. He came back with some of it. And all of this is just considering, like, buying power as well. Yeah. If you want to start bringing in land, 
Genghis Khan, I believe it was, had a ridiculous amount of land. Yeah. Was, he I believe it was Genghis Khan? Yeah. Genghis Khan conquered he, from China, parts of Russia, down into, I believe it was parts of India. Not, not all of India. And all the way across the Middle East into Africa and into Europe as well. It was a massive empire. It was oh, oh, definitely the the biggest that the world had ever seen at the time. Yes, I believe. and he and it was the biggest for a while until yeah. like the Brits came he, along. He didn't have any like monetary wealth, but he had land. He had land, and he had people and people, land and people. Those are those are important. And he, you know, was buried in very simple clothing. We don't know where he was buried. No. He had it. He does have some big memorial. Like he lived a relatively simple life. Yeah. At least where money is concerned. Also, uh, fun fact about Genghis Khan: he is actually credited with helping to revive the Silk Road, uh, because prior to the uh, Khan takeover, I guess, or the Khan Empire, or whatever you would call it, or the Silk Road was just ransacked with bandits and all types of things and so people would use the Silk Road but they would use it locally uh, so they would use whatever Silk Road was in their local area um, sure. but when the Khans came to power and when Genghis Khan took over he basically provided the caravans with a shit ton of security and he got the bandits off the roads and he revitalized the Silk Trade or the Silk Road excuse me so, yeah. fun fact there's just so many things to like dissect with all of these people yeah and if anyone wants to know more about any of these people hit us up on social media yeah give us uh if you have any topics we want to cover let us know yeah and give us your best what do you know facts uh suggestions for stuff that you want to hear us talk about something that you want to hear my smooth silky voice saying please keep them appropriate <laughs> i mean we do talk about some mature stuff on here but like you know let's try to keep it pg-13 people as I say, eight million times in this episode. <laughs> hey, I'm a huge believer in George Carlin's philosophy. Oh yeah, there we go. The there's no such thing as a dirty word, no such thing as a bad word. Bad thoughts, bad ideas, bad intentions, bad people, but no such thing as a bad word. That doesn't mean you can use the words irresponsibly, though. Oh, you can definitely use words irresponsibly. No, no, I'm saying that doesn't mean you should. Oh yeah, well, yeah. You can definitely use them irresponsibly. And you can use them in ways that are hurtful. But with that being said, a word in and of itself is not bad. Fair enough. Its history can be bad. Its intentions can be bad. But words are just sounds that come out of our mouths. Anyway, I think anyway. that's a good place to leave this episode. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> with that... I'm going to say hit us up on our socials, join us over on the subreddit, love each other, love yourselves, peace out.